Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Bex and me Eason. And in this episode we're talking all about the graphic novel Shattered Visage by Dean Motta and Mark Asquith. Shattered Visage was originally a four-part miniseries that came out from DC Comics in 1988-89 and it was uh, written by Dean Motta and Mark Asquith and it was collected as a trade paperback in I think 1990. And although it's still available, it's been floating around, I think, in sort of the second-hand market for some time, and it's still a bit of a curiosity for Prisoner fans, it has just been re-released by Titan Comics, who are essentially completing their series of Prisoner-related comic book material, which started with the Peter Milligan, Colin Lorimer series from last year called The Uncertainty Machine. And they followed that up in the middle of the summer with the release of the Prisoner original art edition, which collected the adaptations of Arrival, the first episode of The Prisoner, by Jack Kirby and Gil Kane and Steve Englehart. And unusually, for all of the different forms that The Prisoner has taken in the years since the original TV series ended, um, albeit in comic book form, uh, on TV, in the form of the AMC remake, or in audiobook form as well, uh, one very unique thing about Shattered Visage is that it was originally uh, delivered as a direct sequel to the show set 20 years after the events of Fallout. And so it was released um, exactly 20 years afterwards and it's set at that time as well, picking up the story seemingly after a 20-year gap and exploring what may have happened to number six and the returning number two in the form of uh, Leo McKern. It was written by Dean Motta and Mark Asquith, and Dean Motta also did the artwork as well. Dean's work is probably most well known in the form of Terminal City and Mr. X as well, that were both around sort of in the 80s and 90s. Yes, and the colour art is by David Hornung and Richmond Lewis, and the lettering is by Deborah Marks. And we're going to kick the episode off with an interview that we had with David Leach, who is the senior creative editor on this reissue at Titan Comics, talking about how Titan came to reissue the book, uh, what people can expect from the new edition, because there's lots of extras in this new publication, and what it was like for him as an editor putting this issue together. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined this time by David Leach from Titan Comics. Hi, David. Hi there, guys. How are you? We're very well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay, yes. I'm struggling through. It's a very miserable, cold, wet and very windy Saturday. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm struggling through. So, how did it come about that uh, Titan have produced this reissue of Shattered Visage almost 30 years after it was originally published? Well, I think it was always it was always the plan uh, of, of, uh, of Nick and Viv, who own Titan, to... They were big Prisoner fans, and um, they wanted to bring all of the Prisoner back. So obviously, you know, we've done did a brand new uh, Prisoner, which was the Uncertainty Machine. We've done the old unpublished Jack Kirby, and we wanted to finish it off with uh, with um, reprinting uh, Dean Motta's Shattered Visage, which came out 20 years after the end of the show. It's all, it coincided with 20 years since the show ended. Uh, so it's always our intention to do to do all of it to sort of you know make the Prisoner all the different versions to be to have one home which was titan so that was it and was it easy to get the uh the rights to get it republished 
Well, unfortunately, I'm not the person to talk to about that side of it because <laughs> that, 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 that sort of, that's one pay grade higher than I am or maybe even two pay grades higher. <laughs> so it, it, uh, it, the way things work at Titan is, um, I might have told this story before, but it's quite good fun. So our, our old uh, publishing director, he would step out of his, of his office and he'd stand in the middle of our big open plan office and he'd shout out, Oi, which one of you gets lights the prisoner? And then one of us would go, oh, I do. And, and basically, because of my extreme age, I'm, I'm exceedingly old. But all these shows that we keep going for, are, I'm someone who loves it all. So I, I put my hand up and go, I like The Prisoner. And he'd go, I knew you would, right, you're doing this. And then I'd be dragged into an office and told, right, you're doing this. And that would be it. So um, there are there are sometimes I should point out, there are some times where I'm, in, I'm involved in the going after licenses. So there'll be... We, we all know that there's something we want to go after, and so then we write a, a pitch for it, and then we, we actually we pitch to get the rights to do something. But in terms of The Prisoner, it was something that we were in uh, negotiations with, with ITV, and we went to met ITV uh, uh, back when they were on the uh, South Bank uh, ITV Tower, and we had a conversation with them, and we sort of talked to them about our vision and what we wanted to do. Um, so that was it, really. So, so yeah, I sort of did have a little hand in it, but it, it wasn't major. I mean, I, I didn't get to sign anything. There was no blood. Uh, there was no blood exchanged. <laughs> <laughs> so, could you describe the plot of Shattered Visage for people who may not be familiar with it? I have the foggiest. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> so, so, so the plot is is that there, there's this there's this young woman uh, whose name is uh, Ms. Drake. I can't remember her first name. I know I should, and I can't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's Saturday. I'm tired. I forget everything. Anyway, she 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 was she uh, resigns from her job and she goes off uh, to go uh, yachting. She gets off on a yacht and sails off one day. Uh, she hits a huge storm and she ends up shipwrecked on uh, on the beach of the, of the village. Uh, which is now this derelict and broken down place. And while she's there, she stumbles across this incredibly old man with a beard who turns out to be uh, uh, original number six. And not only that, but number two is also in the village. Uh, he's living in the Green Dome, and uh, the animosity has continued over the last 20 years. The village itself, whatever it was or whoever controlled it, it's all been shut down. But the security services from around the world are desperate to get their hands on on the secret at the core of the village as a great secret uh, beneath it, and they're all desperate to get their hands on it. And so there becomes a sort of cat and mouse battle uh, with the forces outside the village, but also uh, with Drake and number six, number two, um, battling to sort of uh, to win. One of them has to win, you know. Can number six get to finally break free of number two? He seems to return to the village for his own reasons, and number two has returned for his own reasons. So it's all very, it's all very, it's all very 80s. It's all very sort of. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, circles within circles and that sort of stuff. So it, it, is, it is very interesting. It's certainly, I mean, you know, what's interesting about it is it, it's a direct sequel to, to the original TV show, um, and it tries to sort of uh, to sort of answer it and, and put a, a finality to the whole series. So there, there was, you know, there was an attempt to do all that. So it is, it is very interesting. It's a written, well, written, co-written and drawn by Dean Motter. Uh, who was the artist as well? He went on to do things like uh, Mr. X, which is a a very well known cult '90s comic strip. Um, and he was a passionate, um, or still is a passionate Prisoner fan. So, uh, and you know, he used his beautiful artwork. I mean, obviously, you've seen the artwork. So, yeah, he he was he's definitely very a very passionate fan of it all. So that's it, really, sort of plot wise, in a nutshell. 
You mentioned that it is um, in direct continuity with the original series, but set, yeah. I think, 20 years afterwards. And there are lots and lots of nods to the original show within it, and also some sort of little Easter eggs in there for people who know a lot of the background information about the show as well. Do you think that the comic uh, works as a standalone, or do you really have to have watched the show to appreciate it? Or are there other elements that make it an interesting comic just to read uh, on its own if you're a fan of comics in general? I think I think if you're a fan, I think if if you if you are a fan of comics uh, in general, then then reading any new comic or anything is always is always going to give you something. You know, I think I think uh, that's definitely true. I think if you like comics, you'll you'll find this interesting. But I do think that uh, if you weren't a general fan of comics and and you saw this book um, and you like reading comics, it certainly would help to have watched the original TV show or to be aware of the original TV show. I don't think you could go into it completely blind. I mean, there, there is the the opening, which is almost like a recap, which which gives you uh, a history of the characters. But I, I think you need to have sort of, you need to have lived Number Six's uh, experiences to, to to get the full benefit of it. But then what I think you need to do is once you've watched it, you need to wait 20 years before you read the comic. Then you'll have a proper understanding of it. I think you, you can't go jump in straight away. It'd be too fresh for you. You need 20 years to mull it all over and to cogitate it, and then you can go and read the uh, uh, Chatter Visage. That that'd be my my advice. So there's a forward in the book by Abigail McKern. How did she oh, yes. come on board? Well, I wanted I wanted to uh, when we did the book, I, I wanted to get a forward, and I was trying to think who could I who could I approach, and um, I when I realised that both uh, uh, Magoo and, and McKern's daughters were alive, I, I reached out to both of them to find out uh, if they would be uh, interested in in, in writing a forward, and uh, Leah McKern's daughter was really keen to write it, and I just thought it was a, a really I, what I liked about it was she, she gave us a little insight into into what she remembered of it, and also her father doing it, which I thought was a wonderful little little not an introduction, but just just a glimpse into this world. And I, I thought it, it, it sort of because she was physically connected to it, I just thought it gave it some resonance. Uh, so that's that's why we went after her. I, want, I wanted to get someone who had a connection to it. And there's a really nice uh, afterward by uh, Dean Motter himself, and some really oh, nice yes. original artwork as well. Yes, um, yes. So uh, when you got in touch with Dean, was he eager to get involved with a reissue? You know, have all of the original um, uh, sketches and artwork all been retained? And was that all accessible to you when you were putting this new edition together? Well, it, it was, um, you know, we, we, you, uh, you, uh, you guys and, and, and I have talked, you know, about the challenges of putting together the other, you know, the other prisoner, but the one with the Kirby and, and the uh, and the Gil Kane. So this one was actually was actually much easier. So uh, Dean he gave me contact information for editors or people at DC Comics who still had the um, the files for the original artwork. Now, obviously, it, it, back when this comic was first produced, comics weren't produced using computer. They were all done using film. So in the good old days, when you would order up film from DC or Marvel, they would send you the film in great big acetate sheets, and you get you get four sheets. What how was it for? Yeah, your K sheet, which is black, your magenta, your yellow, and your cyan, and those together would give you the four colours of a comic. Uh, so obviously, we didn't get those those um, acetate sheets through for this because uh, there's no way you can use those now. That that that's a process long gone. Um, so you can't have it. But what what DC did was they had actual files of the original pages. So they weren't just like scans of the pages. They were physical artwork. Well, not physical. They were digital files that we could use in the artwork. So Dean gave me their contact information. I got in contact with uh, with DC with these guys. Uh, we you know, back and forth a little bit, and it was, it was quite easy to get the actual comic book. So he sent us the files over. 
Uh, we had a, we had a few challenges with them because um, because of the way the files were delivered. Uh, the double page spreads, of which there are a few, don't actually exist as double page spreads anymore. They exist as as as, as single pages. So you don't have the, the gutters missing in the middle of the pages. Uh, that's just that's just the way these things are now. They don't they don't exist anymore. So that was quite frustrating. But Dean had. Uh, uh, Dean was a, Dean was great. It was great talking to him. He was very passionate about it. He was very eager to get involved, and, and he wanted to help. And he, he happily wrote as the uh, the afterward. He sent me um, as much as much stuff, the extra stuff that, that he had. So he gave me the, the promotional stuff. He did a brand new cover, which was based on the original painted cover for uh, the original series when it came out in book form. He, he, he reused the artwork, but he, he augmented it. He changed it. He removed the heads from it to make a just like Lost Sight the Seascape. Uh, he gave us the uh, character sketches. Uh, he told us a bit about the. Um, there was stuff he gave us which we couldn't use, and it was it was really frustrating because I, I had a certain page count. So the one thing I couldn't use and I really wanted was the original pitch that that was written for uh, Shattered Visage. So the the original document that was written to convince DC to do it. There was that, and the reason I couldn't use that was it was huge. It was like about twenty or pages long. And it was just pure dense text. There was there was there was no there's no pictures to illustrate it, and it was just decided that we just couldn't we just couldn't give that much space over to doing it. It, it was too much. And also, we had great difficulty tracking it down. So Dean didn't actually have that. I had to get in contact with. Um, oh, it was either the uh, no, it was it was Bob Wayne. Uh, he used to be a big shot at DC. He had access to it, but it was very difficult to get it in time. And in the end, I had to make an editorial decision. And as much as I liked it, I, I decided not to go with it. So. That's the one piece. That's the one thing we couldn't fit into the book. But everything else, yeah, Dean had it, and uh, and he was very helpful. It was. It really wasn't a difficult book to put together. Uh, of the three books I've done on the Prisoner, uh, it was perhaps the easiest one. So, are there any more books in the pipeline for the Prisoner from Titan? Well, we are still talking about the idea. Uh, uh, I know Milligan is very keen to do a second uncertainty machine to carry on the story of our, you know, the new the new prisoner stuff. So I know he would desperately like to do that, and we are still talking about it at Titan. We just haven't we haven't reached a decision yet because the first the first the uncertainty machine did pretty well actually uh, in in terms of sales. I mean, that issue one sold over ten thousand copies, and then it settled down to quite healthy. It dropped to five thousand, which you expect for a second issue. But then we 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 stayed at five thousand, so we did really well with it actually it, it was a pretty good a uh, good selling book uh, so that there's certainly there are certainly people there me included obviously who would love to carry the prisoner on but in terms of, of in terms of vintage stuff i think we've now used all of it up I think the only stuff that we've not used would be uh, brendan mccarthy was a big prisoner fan i know he did some he did some fan art and they did the like a fanzine um and he did get in contact but we couldn't use we couldn't use what he had in any in any of our books but in terms of uh large amounts of material i think i think we've we've now exhausted it and that's of course you guys know of something else of which <laughs> please tell me and i'll see what i can do <laughs> oh, i wish we did i wish we did uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so one thing that did strike me rereading shattered visage for the umpteenth time but probably in light of the fact that we were going to do this interview with you was would there ever be a situation purely hypothetical where uh, milligan's run could actually intersect here and you could have breen meeting up with uh, alice drake 30 years on yeah mm, well i don't know because remember with the uncertainty machine we 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 established that the village here is is not only up and running but it's mm. utterly autonomous it exists separate from any of the other security services mm. Um, I don't know. That that's an interesting idea. I know um, Milligan and I have, have, have talked about 
what we would do next with it. And uh, he has some pretty extreme ideas. I mean, as in, wow, you're crazy, man. And like some really <laughs> interesting stuff. I mean, like really taking the whole concept of of like a, a, a surveillance society to its zenith, uh, zenith, you know, and sort of. Uh, some of the stuff he's got, it's just, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. So, in terms of bringing her back, I don't know. I mean, um, there might be issues with that because obviously she was created by, um, I don't know. You might, we might have legality issues with that one. It's certainly interesting. I don't know, but we haven't thought about that. I think, I think if we were to carry things on with Breen, I mean, also uh, Drake, she would be, she'd be considerably older now, wouldn't she? Hmm. She would be. Uh, 30 years on, yeah. Yeah, so she would be... Also, I mean, what what more could you do with her, really? I mean, she's sort of... She's done her story, hasn't she? Also, remember, at the end of uh, this only thing, obviously, spoiler alert, if you've not read Shattered Visage and you want to, uh, stick your fingers in your ears and go la, la, la <laughs> for the next 20 seconds. But at the end of Shattered Visage, the village is... <laughs> the village is quite, quite obviously utterly annihilated. <laughs> you know, there's nothing left of it by the end of it. So it would be tough to make that world and ours exist side by side. I don't really know what you do. I mean, although remember in our one, uh, the village was, was it, it was almost bordering on... on um, also, another thing, if you're still... If you now put your things out to your ears so you miss what happens at the end of that one, put them back in again if you haven't read Uncertainty Machine. Because at the end of Uncertainty Machine, it's established that the village is uh, it exists almost uh, in a different dimension. It's not necessarily... It's not necessarily set in, in, our, in, our, in our universe. It, it can uh, phase in and out because when Breen escapes from it and he looks back, it vanishes. Hmm. So it might not necessarily be even... It might be in another dimension, is what I'm saying. So who knows? I think that's the great thing about, about the prison. I, I always imagined... God, wait, oh, comes way back when, when this was talked about, because this is the project. These things take a lot, a lot of time to get off the ground. And when, when we first talked to ITV about this, you're talking about maybe four or five years ago when we first discussed what we were going to do. And w- when we were sitting around the table discussing what would we do with the prison if we are going to do new stuff, one of the things we talked about would be that the, prison, the prisoner or the village itself you could always give it to different writers and say, look, do whatever you like. It, 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 it doesn't matter. You know, your version of the village. It would almost be like resetting the clock every time you did a new adventure. It would in, within that world, it would be something new. So continuity would, would, would always reset itself to whatever the new village would be. It would, it would also be like, like it, could it be, uh, yeah, separate universes? So each universe has a different village. I mean, the other thing we talked about was what if there were different villages around the world? There was one on the moon. There was one in Russia. There was all these sort of stuff. So the idea was that, that, that it was a fluid thing. It wasn't. It wasn't. There wasn't one place set in stone. So we talked about all this sort of stuff. So um, yeah, who knows? Maybe 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 Alice does exist in uh, and, and could come back. But I'm fairly sure she's dust. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Interesting. Either. You guys always ask me, and you are. Yeah, I always like that talking to you, chaps. Is that you? You give me you give me pause for thought, and you make me think. Hey, that's interesting. What can I do with that? So uh, yeah, keep it coming. <laughs> Well, thanks so much again for joining us to talk about the reissue of Shatter Visage. My pleasure. We hope that anyone who hasn't read it before gets an opportunity to go and pick it up because it's, it's a wonderful entry in the universe of The Prisoner or the multiverse of The Prisoner, perhaps. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for joining us. That's brilliant. Right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Information. Information. So we'd like to thank David again for joining us. It's always really interesting to hear exactly what goes on in the editorial behind the scenes side of putting one of these reissues together from the initial idea of doing it all the way to it hitting the shelves for people to enjoy. 
I think now uh, what we're going to do is we'll try and keep it relatively spoiler light, but we thought it'd be really fun to talk about some of the things in the new edition and about the Shattered Visage comic itself. As with anything that is a new entry into the world of The Prisoner that isn't the show itself or a reissue of the show itself, um, I think it's fair to say that Shattered Visage has kind of a divided opinion amongst fans. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I think uh, certainly after having spent uh, the last year going through The Prisoner in such great detail for the previous Tally Ho episodes... Um, I've read the comic several times, but I think I have a much better appreciation for it now in light of being so engrossed in potentially thinking about what the show was really about and how I connected with it as well um, over the last year. And reading Shattered Visage, it really feels like a a bit of a curiosity, but a really interesting take, I think, on somebody who really loved the show and wanted to work out how you could continue the actual narrative in a comic book form 20 years after uh, the original show ended and actually keep the show contemporaneous with when the comic book came out because I think the show very much has a 60s vibe to it and what I really like uh, initially about Motta's story is that it it does keep elements of the prisoner very much intact but it does really move the story and the feeling of that kind of 80s paranoia forward as well it brings in a lot of extra elements that i think come from sitting on the show for 20 years mulling it over kind of like what david was talking about in the interview and wondering you know what would have happened to these characters 20 years on and specifically i think it's a very controversial thing but essentially undoing some of the events of fallout I think is probably the only way to open up the show again and take it in a different uh, direction. The story itself begins with a prologue that reveals that the events of Fallout were uh, kind of a a hallucinogenic mind game that was played on uh, number six. Yeah, there was there was a lot of staging going on, a lot of actors who were in on it. And uh, it, it seems to have been yet another experience that was pushed on number six in order to try and crack him. Which calls into question a lot of what we would see within the episode itself. Yeah, and I think it's important to realise that if you just want to stay within the world of the TV show, you can follow what happens in Fallout and say, well, this is what number six saw and experienced, and that's his story, and that's the end of The Prisoner. But what I love is that there's a way that you could have the story itself bifurcating into kind of an alternate timeline where the events of Fallout were staged and they were completely rigged to make Number 6 feel a certain series of events were taking place. And this merely suggests that uh, if that was the case, how exactly would Number 6 have followed up his own story in the village 20 years on? And I really love the fact that ultimately it, it spins off from the idea that he has decided to stay in the village for the past 20 years. Yeah, so in the first of the four parts, uh, which are rather cleverly A, B, C and D, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we're introduced to the new protagonist, as much as there is a protagonist in this series, who is Alice Drake. And the name itself is a nice little Easter egg, because, of course, the, the endless circular question of is number six John Drake or, or is he not? 
Uh, so this is Alice Drake, who has apparently resigned from her position as some kind of spy, some kind of member of MI5. Uh, her husband, Thomas, is still with the security services and is not happy that she's decided to leave. But she has decided to essentially strike out on her own, leave her job, leave her marriage and go sailing around the world. And this is what she's going to do. She's going to go on a solo sailing trip around the world using what would have been fairly new technology at the time in, uh, in keeping the boat going. And that story in itself is an interesting way to mirror what happens to number six. What I think is quite interesting in contrast to the original series is that there we had a story about uh, number six resigning, being drugged and then brought to the village without knowing and then waking up there and seeing he's in a brand new place and, and his adventures in that setting. Here we see a character who is essentially trying to escape themselves but arguably somebody who might be looking for a similar form of freedom that number six may have been looking for but actually then the events that transpire that bring Alice to the village are very different but when she is brought there the fact that we now have a reversal of lots of the tropes that we've seen in the original series I think is a nice way of uh, playing on some of the themes that the original TV show um, worked with and it's an interesting way of bringing back the character of number six without him having developed that much in the last uh, 20 years because it, it's revealed that number six is now not only alone in the village but he essentially has uh, taken on the role as the leader and the person who will in a number two like fashion be Alice Drake's guide and introduction to that world but it's not an introduction to the populated village it's an introduction to what he sees in the village and what it represents after all these years and it's clear that the isolation has actually made him contemplate I think a lot about his own his own experiences in the original tv series and how he wants to relate his feelings of the village to a newcomer which is obviously what the village tries to do when it captures number six in the original series. Yes, because when her ship is shipwrecked during a storm, she washes up on the beach of the village itself mm. and uh, meets number six, who is still there after all this time. And I really love some of the parallels between their two characters, because by going off on this solo journey, leaving her family, she's put her daughter in a boarding school so that she can do this. She is completely isolating herself, intentionally so, in the same way that Number Six often did, in cutting himself off from everyone in the village and uh, you know, feeling like he was completely on his own or, or wanting to be completely on his own. And also it, the fact that she's sailing as well it is a, a direct parallel to the show when, on two occasions, Number Six uses a boat to try and escape the village in Chimes of Big Ben. And then again in Many Happy Returns, where you see him in Many Happy Returns uh, using what, whatever tools he has to try and navigate. And uh, as Alice says in, in the first part of this book, um, she's going to use satellites to navigate, but it's not so different to the way people used to use the constellations. And of course, we've seen number six doing that in the show. 
Yeah, and I think it's it may even be as specific and potentially nerdy a reference to the to the cut scene from the Chimes of Big Ben, <laughs> where Number Six is seen using the contraption called a triquetrum, mm. I think, to work out where the village might be. Um, so it does it does have these moments where it's it's got that strange mix of technologies from a different era. But it does feel very 80s and having this kind of a description of computer technology as being something very new to help navigate and things like that. Mm. And specifically, unlike other adaptations of The Prisoner, I think it's interesting that uh, Motter and Asquith have used a female lead to introduce the reader to the village and all the events of the story. Mm. Whereas obviously the original show was centred around number six, all other adaptations have used a male lead in some capacity. It was clearly something that wouldn't have ever happened on McGowan's watch anyway, given that it was probably such a personal thing to him that it was really about him. Um, but it's nice to see um, a change in gender in the lead, especially. This is only a minor spoiler, but there's a, a wonderful moment where uh, number two and number six are going at it. And Alice is just, I've had enough of this. <laughs> and wants nothing to do with it. It's a, it's a lovely touch. Yeah. Now, we're not going to go into too many details about the story itself beyond that. I think David gave quite a good uh, description of the events in the interview we just had. But I thought we'd talk a little bit about how it works in the context of, of the original Prisoner TV show. Now, what I think is really apparent is that throughout, the creators have put a huge amount of effort into referencing the original show where possible. There are so many little Easter eggs that I think it's really fun to kind of look closely at a lot of the artwork and, and see certain names popping up, uh, often related to behind-the-scenes characters. And also there are links to certain plot points in the original TV show as well. So, you know, I think you see at various points Angelo Muscat's name pop up, Ian Rakoff's name. Uh, obviously Drake, as you've mentioned, is a, is a callback to the uh, link with Danger Man. But there are also sort of thematic elements, such as the allusions to various fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, is it Thomas who has that description of what the acronym POP might actually mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I thought was really nice. I think in the original show, the only one that's followed up here is protect other people. Um, but again, fitting with the sort of spy narrative, which is much more developed here than it was in the original TV show. There are lots of other ways in which uh, we could view what POP may actually mean. I think more directly, there's lots of bits of dialogue which are lifted directly from the original show. Some of them are callbacks and they're quite neat. I, th I think some readers who are very familiar with the show might think it's a bit overdone. But I like the fact that they've thrown in so many callbacks that make Shattered Visage feel familiar, but not a retread of the original series. Because I think ultimately it is functioning, and I think very successfully, as a sequel to the original show. It doesn't mean that you have to believe this is what happened. It doesn't in any way detract from the original series. But it's almost like this this what-if narrative that follows on 20 years afterwards. Um, and it's nice that it's set firmly within the continuity of the show and unashamedly does so. One of the really lovely touches that I thought in the, uh, in the first part is very early on you see Alice in a bookshop. And she's buying a couple of books to give to her daughter before she leaves on this round-the-world voyage. And you see her with Alice in Wonderland and the Secret Garden. And these are two lovely parallels with this because, you know, she is literally Alice, who is about to 
get into a storm and wash up in this bizarre place with bizarre people in it where nothing makes sense. So it is very much like going down the rabbit hole. And also with the secret garden, with the reference to the, the village being a, a walled off place that no one is supposed to know about. And yet you have this woman who is effectively going to find the way in, find the key and get inside and and try to discover what this place is. And I think in the same way that the original series played heavily on you know, certain references to fairy tales and nursery rhymes, which placed the story in a, a, a sort of uh, part of a, an ongoing canon of mythical stories that are a part of a cultural tradition. I think by introducing these other important works, which are both works that are for children, but also work on a different level for adults, with Alice in Wonderland and the Secret Garden, it's still placing this idea of the village, of number six's struggle, in that canon of storytelling. So let's talk a little bit about Shattered Visage as a comic itself. As a story, um, I think it is really nice, as we've said, as a follow-up to uh, what could have happened 20 years after the events of The Prisoner. I think it's interesting that they've chosen to keep continuity. And the idea that really fascinates me is the fact that even if they do go to the effort of revealing that the events of Fallout may not have been the real events that transpired, I think that the decision to have Number Six be a character who decided to stay in the village, I think is really important because that's an element which I think fits beautifully with where Number Six's ideology almost sat. In a strange way, did he have a problem with the village because of what the village represented or is there an element where he could survive there within its rules and within the environment if ultimately no one else was around and <laughs> he could make the rules and it was his own place of isolation where he could as he alluded to several times you know find a place where he could seek sort of peace of mind I mean, maybe it's the most claustrophobic and antagonistic place when it's fully occupied by uh, the village and all the citizens. But maybe it's exactly the kind of isolation 20 years on that he was seeking, which I think is a really interesting way of viewing how number six relates to the village and how ultimately when he first appears, at least, he is deciding to almost take on the mantle of uh, number two or arguably well number two in relation to how he interacted with the character who would be in the green dome but obviously even if the events of fallout didn't happen he has almost taken on the role of number one hmm. yeah um, so i think there are some really interesting questions that are posed by the story itself i think the elements that are slightly strange to me are the heavy reliance on the kind of uh, B plot involving Thomas hmm. uh, simply because I think there's a lot more that could have happened to maybe tie it into the events that are taking place in the village rather than have them sort of run in parallel until the very end and I think one of the elements of the prisoner that was always very important was it had to really focus on number six the characters he was interacting with and the events of the village there was always a risk, I think, that when it went out of the village, 
it had to move to a very, very high concept for it to actually work. Um, whereas here, there's so much where it's clear that the village is a real place that exists somewhere where it can be found and that there are people who can get there. And there are almost too many people who seem to know about the village who the reader finds out about, even if um, characters in the story don't have much of a clue about. Yeah, it's an incredibly atmospheric comic. There are many pages where there's no dialogue at all, just beautiful artwork. And the colouring is very reminiscent of some other comics I loved from that era. Um, there are times when it reminds me of sort of early era Hellblazer yeah, yeah. in the way that it's done. And I think I think Dean Motter did some work on Hellblazer at some point. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was the very first annual. Uh, he did the artwork on Venus of the Hard Shell. Hmm. But what I, I really like about it is that it is very much a comic book of the late 80s in the design, just as much as The Prisoner was a TV show of the late 60s in yeah. its design. And and even now, it, how The Uncertainty Machine is very much a comic of uh, the, whatever we're calling this decade, I'm not really sure what <laughs> it is. But they, you know, although they are all part of this interwoven story, they all reflect the art of the era in which they're being made without trying to emulate what's gone before, but respecting and reflecting everything that's gone before through the lens of the, the era in which the art is being done now. Yeah, it certainly has um, a tremendous amount of value as one of those late 80s comics. Certainly it feels like a, it does feel like a Vertigo comic from that era. Mm. I think one thing I would say about it is I would be intrigued to know how a non-prisoner fan or somebody who didn't have a clue about the show reacted to it. I think it has a lot of value, especially if you're a fan of Dean Motter's work. Um, it, it does feel a lot like something like Mr. X. There are hints of that throughout. Uh, it does feel like it has uh, uh, the vibe of, of obviously the creator of what would become uh, Mr. X as well. But also it's it must be quite impenetrable as a story if you don't know the history of the show. But I think in a strange way, you could probably read this and rather than be confused you could probably go back and watch the TV show afterwards and realise that it actually fits within that same slightly surreal, slightly ambiguous vein anyway. And the fact that the show ends with Fallout and this begins with the events of Fallout essentially being erased means that you could kind of read this as a standalone, but I think it would probably uh, trigger a lot of people to want to seek out the original show as well. And then I think you'd be able to then view Shattered Visage in a slightly different way uh, mainly in light of what you've seen in the original show, but it, but I think importantly, um, I don't want to over you know, overdo this point, but it in no way detracts from the original series. Mm. If you don't want to engage with it and you don't want to read it, that's absolutely fine. But I think it's a really interesting way that you can expand the world of the prisoner within the continuity and the mythology of the show, um, and I think it's very successfully done. And I think. Um, it deserves to be read more widely as well, which is why I'm really excited that uh, Titan have put this new edition out. Uh, in the interview that we did with him, David mentioned the pitch document that exists. Yeah, that was something where I know you can't get this on a podcast because it's audio, but my jaw almost dropped when I heard that because <laughs> I think, um, you know, obviously David said it was cut for space reasons and probably some difficulties in getting access to it. But it's really interesting that the original pitch still exists somewhere um, I think it'd be a really fascinating thing 
ultimately to see uh, alongside Shattered Visage because I'd love to find out how the idea was transformed, I think, from pitch to the actual script and ultimately to the comic that we now know as Shattered Visage, mainly because it's clear that Motta and Asquith are really big fans of the original series. So how they would have presented their ideas, I think, would be really interesting. There might be some things in there that maybe didn't make it, some things that did. I suppose it's a good time to talk about the extras as well. Mm. There's a really nice afterward by uh, Dean Motta, which uh, very briefly alludes to his first meetings with DC about getting the job, putting Shattered Visage together. So I think the fact that somewhere in a vault there is a 20-page pitch document um, (laughs) that uh, is maybe their initial thoughts on it, and it's certainly something that would have got the project greenlit more formally. I think it's really fascinating to know uh, potentially that one day that could be uh, uh, released. I think that'll be really interesting to see. So as well as the afterward by Dean Motta, there's a forward by Abigail McKern, who's the daughter of Leo McKern, um, because of course his likeness is is one of the characters in the book. His his number two is in the book, and it's lovely to have that connection with someone who, you know, obviously has memories of being around uh, Leo McKern when he was filming various things, going to shoot. She talks about how she uh, remembers being in London when they were shooting some of those exterior scenes for Fallout. It's only a short piece, but it's really enlightening and quite touching to have that connection in the book. And the other extras are also uh, really nicely presented and put together. There's some really nice character designs that were originally done for number six and number two, and also um, a covers gallery, which puts together the original A, B, C and D covers, and also I think the original cover. I need to check our copy that we have because we have one of the original ones. It has the original cover that was used for uh, the graphic novel release in 1990, which has been uh, revised for this new edition by Dean Motta. Yes, it's also got some scans of original black and white artwork um, from him, which is really lovely to see how it would have originally looked with all of its annotations and bits changed on it. Yeah, so I suppose in summary, Shattered Visage, if you're a fan of The Prisoner and you haven't read it, it's definitely worth seeking out. I think it's really great to see it now with this new edition, which has all these really cool extra bonus things as well. And you know, let us know what you think about it, because I think it is a bit of a curiosity. It is divisive. I think looking back on it now is very different to probably how... Uh, people may view it when it originally came out, mainly because uh, there's been so much reinvigoration of interest in the show as a result of the uh, recent 50th anniversary. So I think a lot of new people might be coming to the show and looking for prisoner-related media that extends beyond the original TV show. And we've covered things uh, already in the Tally Ho podcast, and this is one of the things that we kind of held back on because we knew this new edition was coming from Titan as well. So If you've read it, let us know what you think. Did you like it? Did you not like it? It's really fascinating, I think, again, to to hear from all of our prisoner listeners to find out, you know, what their views are on on the extended world of the prisoner as well. Yes, and we couldn't wrap up an episode of the Tally Ho about the prisoner without having a news roundup from Rick Davey of the Mutual website. So take it away, Rick. This is Rick Davey of the Mutual website www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. The Prisoner audio series by production company Big Finish is currently airing on Sunday evenings 
on the UK radio station BBC Radio 4 Extra. The run, which stars Mark Elstob as number six, has just entered into the second series of episodes. A Life Amongst Strangers is the title of the forthcoming biography of the much-loved actor Peter Wingard, who appeared in the episode Checkmate as number two, and most famously as Jason King in the series of the same name and its predecessor series, Department S. The book will be published later in 2019 and is written by Peter's close friend, Tina Wingard Hopkins. Maurice Farhi, who wrote an unmade episode of The Prisoner entitled The Outsider, has died at the age of 84. The script was rejected by Patrick McGowan after he had been commissioned by George Markstein to write for the series. He had also written for Doctor Who and later became a successful novelist and campaigner. In other sad news, the actress Sheena Marsh, who so memorably appeared as Doris the Barmaid in the episode The Girl Who Was Death, has also passed away, in a nursing home in Kent where she'd lived for several years. She'd also appeared in the Doctor Who story The Gunfighters, as well as series such as No Hiding Place and Armchair Theatre. The series Danger Man, which starred Patrick McGowan as John Drake, is being repackaged as a single set, including all the episodes of both the Half Hour and Hour series, by Network later this year. And finally, April the 14th, 2019, is the date for the next set of London the Prisoner and Danger Man location tours. Free for all to attend, conducted by Dave Lally, the morning sees from 10.30am at Victoria Station's Burger King a tour of Danger Man locations, and from 2pm from Marble Arch, a three and a half mile walking tour of the Prisoner's London locations. Be seeing you there. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Be seeing you. Thanks again, Rick, for that news roundup. It's lovely to hear Rick again on the podcast. It seems like it's been a while. It's only, actually only been what, three months yeah. since uh, since Fallout, but that was an epic episode. <laughs> um, and it's really lovely to get back to talking about the prisoner. And there's certainly going to be lots more from us in the future on that topic, looking at other things that are around in the prisoner verse. Well, that's it for our episode all about Dean Motta and Mark Asquith's Shattered Visage, which has just been re-released by Titan Comics. We'd like to thank you all for listening. As always, um, do get in touch with us on Twitter at TFCAA or just search for Time for Cakes and Ale, which is our mothership stream uh, on Facebook. Go to our website and drop us a line as well. And if you enjoy our podcast and you have a spare minute, please consider dropping us a review on iTunes because it really does help get the word out about the pod. So we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Tally Ho podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to everything through our Time for Kate and Ale feed. And in that way, you can see our episodes, which are our general Kate and Ale podcasts, our Twin Peaks episodes, Cherry Pie and Coffee, and of course, the Tally Ho as well. Yes. So that's all from us this time. Until next time, be seeing you. you.